Hello, folks. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason, and I appreciate you being part of our show today. This is going to be an open mic calls day. I'm off schedule. That means I'm not in the studio during my regular times uh, because we're putting together a show for a future time when I won't be anywhere available to do the show. Uh, so we're taking our open mic calls here to fill up the hour. And, of course, the open mic calls are calls that you make um, off schedule by either going to our website or dialing a number and then offering your your question. And we'll play that, as you'll see, if you're not familiar with this, and, and then I'll respond. The disadvantage for me uh, is that I don't get to interact with you, which I often like to do. If there's clarification I need to get or we role play or something like that, uh, and that's always fun. But the advantage is you don't have to wait in line and uh, hopefully get in and get your question and our interaction taken care of. Um, and uh, you don't have to thread the needle and be waiting online while the show is actually live and being recorded. You can do this anytime. Uh, if you are dialing for open mic calls, the number is 857-DIAL-STR, 857-DIAL-D-I-A-L-S-T-R, or by the numbers 857-342-5787. Another way to do it, and I think this is the way most people um, have done it, is they go to our homepage and under podcasts, uh, look at live broadcasts, select that, and then jump through the hoops. And of course, you'll see how this works as people weigh in with their points of view. So let's start with Meg Smiley, um, who has a, a question uh, about evil in love, which is one I'm always happy to answer. So let's hear what Meg has to say. Hey, Greg. Um, I so appreciate your ministry and um, everything you guys do there at Stand to Reason. My question today is about um, free will. So I have been leading an apologetics course, and we've been talking about um, how we cannot have um, moral evil without free will, but we also um, cannot freely love God without free will. And so it's a trade-off that God made. Um, but the question that I have is in regards to heaven. Does this mean that we do not have free will in heaven, or is it a different type of free will, since there will be no sin in heaven? Um, so, yeah, I guess my question is, how how do you view free will in heaven, um, seeing that we will not be sinning there? Does that mean that we simply don't want to sin, that we can't sin in the presence of God? Um, what's your take on that? Hmm. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Meg. And uh, this this is an interesting issue to discuss. And part of the difficulty is um, a lot of the notions are hazy, ambiguous. They're difficult to pin down. For example, uh, if I were to ask, what exactly is free will? Well, some people might say, well, that means I can do whatever I want to do. All right. Um, that's one way of putting it. And that seems like a common sense way of putting it. If I don't want to do it, I don't have to do it. If I want to do it, I can do it. I can freely choose to do whatever I want to do. So that would be my decision, my will in exercise. Another way of, of putting it is that a free will is the uh, satisfies what philosophers would call the CDO condition. 
the coulda done otherwise condition. Now, that actually is just a little different than what I just described. Um, freedom on that sense is only freedom if I was capable of doing something else. If I wasn't capable of doing something else, then it's not really freedom. Now, you can see this is a little bit more demanding of a definition of freedom. Um, it's not just enough to be able to do what you want, but if you, uh, if you don't have the capability in one way or another, of doing otherwise, then it's not actually freedom. So I'm just offering two takes. And incidentally, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable even with those being exhaustive categories to some degree. I've I, I just, um, th- there are certain aspects about f- human freedom. And when I say aspects of human freedom, I, I mean, as we experience our own exercise of, of making choices that are our own, which would be another way of characterizing freedom, um, there just seems—it's it's hard to capture this notion in a robust fashion. Now, I think we can capture it enough to answer your questions, but I'm just saying, even with a, a master's degree in philosophy in which we knock this notion around quite aggressively, there's still some ambiguities for me and things that are are, are just hard to pin down. All right. So um, I'm going to there are a couple of aspects of the question here, Meg, and I want to I want to focus on uh, on both aspects, actually, and the, the nature of free will in heaven, for example. And I also want to talk about the relationship of free will and love. So we'll cover both of those issues. But as far as free will in heaven is concerned, Here's the difficulty. If your view is the, 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 that freedom can only be real freedom if you have the possibility of doing otherwise. In other words, the CDO could have done otherwise um, requirement has got to be in place. Then you're going to have a problem talking about genuine freedom in heaven. Because in heaven, we will not have the flesh. We will have, uh, I think, immutable goodness. We will be made like Christ in our goodness, in the resurrected body, and have no desire for evil. And in this way, we are like God. Uh, we, we, it's an attributable or, or communicable attribute— this goodness that God gives us and secures in us such that, well, we will never do evil because we will never want to do evil. And this, like I said, similar to God, God can't do—God can do anything He wants. The thing is, He will never want to do something evil, and therefore He will never do something evil. In fact, He cannot do something evil. Oh, well, now when you add that quality characteristic, which it seems is appropriate, there is no evil in God. There is no—he cannot be induced to do evil. He is not tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt others to do evil. Everything God desires is good because goodness is his nature. Well, then it seems that one definition of freedom couldn't even apply to God in heaven. 
God doesn't have the opportunity or the ability that could have done otherwise potential to do wrong in heaven. He can only do other things that are good. He can't do bad things. So on that more vigorous definition of freedom, um, God's not free. Not only will we not be free in heaven, God won't even be free by that definition. No, I think that shows the limitations of the definition, doesn't it? That, it, 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 boy, if anybody's free, it's God. He is not hampered or hindered by any lack of any kind, a lack of knowledge, a lack of perception, if you will, although some people collapse his God's knowledge into his perception, his omniscience with his omnipresence. So he's omnipresent in the sense that he knows everything that's going on. Uh, but his uh, his sovereignty, his his um, uh, omnipotence, his ability to do anything the power can do. Um, uh, he's he's th- these are these are uh, qualities unique to God, and they are they are uh, things that he can do freely. In a certain sense, more free than anyone else because of these abilities, but they do not include the ability of falling short, which is what sin is, falling short of goodness. Hamartia, the Greek word for sin, means missing the target, okay? God can't fall fall short. So there's a certain sense in which we could say, well, that, in one sense, that's not freedom, but in another sense, it's the best, it is the, the most appealing sort of liberty that anyone could have, and I agree with that. In 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 the most useful sense of the word, um, God is the most free because He is not able to do certain things. He is constitutionally incapable of doing wrong or harm or evil or anything like that. And um, as we are changed into His image, we see Him so we are like Him, in the case of Jesus, we receive a resurrection body, a glorious body, not a, a fleshly body in the sense of being physical, but also not a fleshly body in terms of having this bent sin nature. Uh, when we become like God in that sense, then we are going to experience the most important types of type of freedom, even though we will not be able to fulfill the CDO, could have done otherwise, requirement. Which shows to me that the CDO definition of um, freedom may be helpful in kind of earthly discussions, if you will, but is not relevant and significant or important to our life after the resurrection, when we will share in God's holiness. Okay? So, Will there be free will in heaven? Not the CDO condition type of free will, but the free will that we are choosing to do whatever we want, and we are safe from sin in that context because we will never want to do what's wrong. Why? Because we will have been transformed. Okay, so there's one side of the issue that you asked about. There is another side here, and it's the argument 
why God allowed, or it's a, it's a rationale that addresses the question of why God allowed man to fall in the first place. Why man was capable of making a choice to do evil. Why did God even allow that? Now, I think that's a fair question, but I think there are some answers that don't cover the ground well, in fact, create other problems. And the one that you have heard, and this Frank, Frank Turk holds this view too, and we've had discussions about this, and I haven't been able to persuade him, but that the idea, and I've heard numbers of people from the stage, as it were, giving illustrations of Chatty Cathy or marionettes, you know, I love you, I love you, and it's just mechanical. I actually think this is a mischaracterization, but nevertheless, the idea that if our love is not freely chosen and it's just a mechanical thing that we are being forced to say, it's not really love. Okay? Now, I do not think that is a good argument. And the reason is, is because there's a kind of a false dichotomy. It isn't the alternative to freely loving being a mechanical a machine that utters noise that sounds like love noise. I don't think that's the alternative. And I actually don't think the love we're, kind, we're talking about here, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this, uh, actually it has, has, has the genesis, its genesis in freedom. Okay, now I know that when we talk as Christian people, or even as mature non-Christian people, who understand that love is an action, not just an emotion. Okay, um, that we are that 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 uh, when we get married, <clears throat> we are married because we get married because we love each other. But after we take our vows, that order changes. Um, we we. We stay married. Let's see how we get married because we love each other. We love each other because we're married. <laughs> I heard a, a priest give a homily at a wedding, and I thought that was great. Now we love each other because we're married. Okay, wait a minute. We're, we're actually there's an equivocation here because the word love is used differently in each case. In the first case, we are getting married because we love each other, and the love we're talking about is an, an emotional attachment, an emotional move towards another person, a desire for another person. Okay. In the second case, we're not talking about a desire for another person. We're talking about a behavior. We act in a loving, faithful, kind, virtuous, have and a hold, love and a cherish, etc., etc., until death do us part, because we made a commitment to do so. And as C.S. Lewis points out, what's the point of making the commitment if the commitment means that we are just going to love someone else, stay married, while when we feel love? He said, you don't need a commitment to do that. When you feel love, you're going to have that feeling. It's already there. You don't say, I commit to f- keep feeling the way I'm feeling. No, what the commitment is that you act a certain way when the feeling is not there to support it for those seasons when it takes place. Americans, Western civilization, very confused on that point right now. But um, notice that that love could be understood in two ways. Love is an emotional desire and an attachment, a subjective emotional attachment to another person, a wife, 
a friend, a child, a relative, a brother, a sister, parents. These are all deeply um, affective, subjective, emotional things. And then there's another kind of love, and this, these aren't—it isn't an either-or, but you know, in relationships, these, these are ebb and flow at different times and in different ways, where you, you choose to act in a loving way, loving another as you love yourself. That's the way Jesus put it. Now, you don't love yourself in the sense of having an emotional feeling about yourself. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Lewis points out that loving another as you love yourself is looking out for their good and well-being the way you look out for your own. So that's an action. That's not an emotion. Now, the question is, when we are saying something like, we cannot love without freedom, what is the kind of love we have in view there? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's the first kind, not the second kind. God wants us to love Him. And what we mean by that, you can just listen, ask the question for clarification when people say that. He wants us to desire Him, to be close to Him. You wouldn't want, you know, uh, uh, your friends just to, you know, obey and act like they care about you if they don't really care about you, okay? Completely legitimate points. But I want to make an observation about that kind of love— the love that um, we are talking about here. God wants us to love Him, desire Him, move towards Him, have an emotional response to Him, be with Him, all of those things that are the kind of thing that motivate people to get married. That kind of love is not a function of the will. And this is easy to demonstrate. I asked somebody, you have children? Yes. Do you love your children? Absolutely. Now, here I'm speaking, and I think by common understanding, uh, an emotional attachment, a desire, okay, and a deep, profound affection for. Not do you love your children, that is, you'll keep taking care of them even when they make you mad. I mean, that's important, but that's not what we're talking about, is it? Do you love your children? Of course I love my children. When did you start loving your child? Oh, the first day they were born. Really? So on the first day they were born, you made a decision to have an emotional feeling about your kids. No, that's not what happened. What happened? There they were. I walk into the hospital. My son is in my my wife's arms. There is this magnificent creature. I fell in love immediately. Oh, notice the language. I fell in love. I didn't choose in love. I fell in love. And that's the language that we use about romance, and lots of other things. In other words, the love that is an emotional connection or attachment to people is not something we are just willing into existence. That never happens. Now, we might will behaviors that lead to an emotional feeling of love. I'm not putting that down at all. I'm just describing. But it isn't our decision to love in the emotional way that creates the emotional love. Boy, that would be great if it could, wouldn't it be? I mean, we could then just crank out the love for anybody. Now, we are to crank out the loving action and attitude and goodwill and all that other stuff, 
towards even our enemies. But that's this other kind of love, isn't it? The kind that we're talking about here is an emotional kind of thing. Does God want us to love Him? Yes. Now, what do you mean? To do whatever He says? To act in a certain way? Well, He does want that, but isn't what we're talking about something different? God doesn't want a charity Catholic saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. He wants somebody who who really loves him. But notice that that kind of love is not a function of the will. And this is why I don't think the argument that God allowed free will in human beings that made evil possible, not inevitable, but certainly possible, and what eventuated, of course, um, that God allowed that kind of free will because without that kind of free will, there couldn't be real love. I think this is a, a, fa- a flawed, a deeply flawed argument. You can have real love without that kind of freedom because you don't freely choose that kind of love to begin with. Whether that's your children or your spouse, I mean, look, I, I guarantee you there are women here that did not even like the man that they ended up marrying when they first knew them. All right? And then then something happened. They got to know them, and they got closer to them, and their emotions began to be engaged, and pretty soon they're feeling something about that individual. And the feeling grows strong enough that they want to always be with this one that they feel so strongly about, and therefore they get married. And then they have to navigate, of course, a relationship in which feelings go up and down, and now it's a commitment to act in a loving way that has to be the engine that drives the relationship, not the emotions that go up and down. Okay? So, so uh, n- notice that even when that kind of love is illicit, like a, a, a man falls for a, a woman who's married, and they fall into adultery. I mean, they, they might, might frequently say things like, I didn't plan on this. I didn't choose this. I didn't even want this. It just happened. Now, I'm not offering that as an excuse for the behavior. I'm just looking at a different, from a different angle at the same thing, that certain, this kind of intense emotional thing is not something we choose. It's something that happens. And if that's the case, then, um, it is unrelated to the issue of freedom to sin requires freedom to love since loving in that way can't be done without freedom. Of course it can be done without freedom. It, it happens all the time. People don't choose it. It happens to them. They are wooed to it. Now, uh, this does a couple of things. The sound quality just changed for me. Are we still on? Yeah, we're still rolling. Okay, that was weird. Um, so, so what this this means that we're going to have to retool our rationale for why God would allow evil in the first place because um because free will which was necessary for love doesn't turn out to be the reason God had to 
give us the freedom to fail morally. There must be something else going on. And I, people come up with ideas about what that entails and why God would allow evil. This is theodicy, the task of theodicy. And um, and I, I offer some thoughts that do have to do with freedom, but not in the sense of freedom connected with love. And I talk about that in the story of reality. Okay, so you, you, you can give it your best shot. I don't think this way of approaching it works for the reason I mentioned, um, because free will is not necessary for the kind of love that we are talking about when we talk about our love for God. But it does open up another op- uh, a possibility for us, and that is that maybe God has a way of drawing us to himself inexorably, that where our choice is not really relevant. He he acts in our lives in a way in which we fall in love with him after a fashion. And if you could, you know, sidestep the romantic implications of that statement, um, we have a strong emotional attachment to God. And because of that strong emotional attachment to God that he has caused in our lives, we make a choice to follow him. Now, maybe you, some of you are beginning to see a way of understanding God's election, a drawing someone inexorably into his presence without technically violating their free will. They, he's wooing them in a very effective way, so they desire him, and in desiring him, respond to his call to trust in Jesus. So there's a lot going on there. Um, a little, <laughs> I'm looking at the clock, first half hour, just talking about this issue. But um, there are b- broad ramifications of this, too. Simply put, I don't think that freedom uh, is necessary to love robustly, because I don't think love works that way, the kind of emotional love we're talking about. And we have many examples in our personal lives of how that's the case. I mean, we may really dislike our parents, but we can still honor them, right? We can still act honorably and lovingly towards them, right? Even if our emotions aren't there. And we can really have an emotional attachment to somebody that we didn't choose that's inappropriate, and we could still act against the indicate the dictates of that feeling and say no to immorality. Uh, what was the um, Jane Eyre? Jane Eyre is a great classic novel in which that features significantly a strong love relationship. Um, and uh, Jane says, no, I cannot dishonor God, no matter how strongly I feel these affections for you. Um, so that's all true. And uh, there's not a problem in heaven because we will be able to do whatever we want. We can choose all kinds of things. We won't choose evil because we won't want it. It won't be in our nature to desire it. And that is the greatest form of liberty. And there you go, Meg. I <laughs> uh, hope that's helpful for you. Let's take a break and we'll come back to some more questions here on our Open Mic Calls broadcast. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Stand to Reason website was designed with you in mind. 
It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. All right. Well, that, that question took half our show, um, but it was an important one, and uh, there's a lot to chew on uh, regarding that issue. But let's. Uh, let, this one should go qu- more quickly. This is Adrian, and it's a question about what's happening in her son's school. Hi, Greg. Thank you for taking my question. <laughs> this is Adrian calling from uh, Calgary in Canada. Um, I have a question in regards to statement of faith. Uh, recently, at my son's Christian school, they, the statement of faith was changed. And, uh, and I'm just going to read out uh, one of the pieces that was added, and I'd like to get your take on this. Um, so in paragraph five, it says, We believe that humanity, both male and female, is created in the image of God after his likeness and therefore has transcendent intrinsic worth. Okay, that's no problem. That was included in the previous. Here's the added pieces. Uh, we believe that every human is equally valued by God. For this reason, we reject racism, sexism, ageism, or other forms of malicious discrimination based solely on a person's bio- biological traits. So my question is, is that uh, when I saw this last statement about racism, sexism, ageism, I was thinking, okay, well, why, why is this added into our statement of faith? What does that have to do with faith? Um, why didn't we reject uh, things like abortion or, or something like that? Hmm. Um, just to me, it seems out of place using these racism, sexism, ageism words. Uh, just wondering if I'm being too wooden or if I'm kind of trying to have a careful approach. I did stand up in opposition to this, and um, but it was passed anyway. Mm-hmm. So anyway, just wondering uh, your thoughts. Um, I am a strategic partner, and I thank you for your ministry. I, I enjoy all the things that you do. Thank you, and uh, bye. Well, thank you, Adrian, and my my apologies for treating you like a, yo, Adrian! Uh, wrong gender there. Um, 
you're a guy, obviously, and uh, glad you called, and thank you for being a strategic partner. And uh, yeah, this is an interesting circumstance. Um, as you read the entire characterization that was offered, um, I, my my concerns um, diminished quite a bit. When I first read uh, the summary that Amy gave me of what you had to say, um, uh, I thought, oh, man, here we go. A, a Christian school is going woke. But I, I don't think that's what's going on here. And, uh, I, of course, I wasn't privy to the discussions, and I'm not exactly sure why something like abortion wasn't mentioned in the context of every human being made in the image of God and being precious and valuable. But I think that there, uh, that, that this adding racism, sexism, and ageism, the way that it was offered, and uh, something like the language was, uh, is it possible to scroll this window, Amy? Is it this window I'm looking at to scroll it up so I can see the other half of this dialogue? Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm looking for the text here. Uh, Transcendent. Okay, there's no problem. Uh, Okay. um, uh, Okay. Now I can't find it. Now it's too much. (laughs) But it was something about uh, it it was something about uh, vicious discrimination just because of these of these characteristics, just because of a sex, or just because of a race, or just because of a. uh, uh, an age. Now, these, of course, are a little bit like trendy words, and it might be what they are saying is, we believe in the intrinsic value of all human beings, and here are some contemporary ways that our commitment to human value play out. In case you are wondering, whoever is reading this about sending your kid to our school, we apply our understanding of human transcend, transcended value um, in in these areas, as well as others, okay? So they're just underscoring that their, their, their um, commitment against racism, sexism, and ageism is a, a natural out, uh, outplay or an outworking of their commitment to the Christian worldview, which I think is fine. Now, that does raise a question about abortion, (laughs) which it strikes me would be the most obvious example of a violation of respect for human dignity in our culture right now, Uh, principally because the the most dangerous place for a baby to be is resting in her mother's womb, given the preponderance of abortion even since the recent... uh, decision by uh, regarding Roe versus Wade. So, yeah, it's just uh, more children die of abortion than anything else. I mean, I'm, I'm not chuckling like that's funny. I'm talking like that's bizarre is what it is. So they, it strikes me they ought to have included that. And one wonders why. So my, my concern, similar to yours, is that, um, Adrian, is that that not that racism, sexism, and ageism were included as moral concerns in light of the transcendent value of all human beings, but that abortion was excluded. That's probably what you emphasized with them. And I don't know what they would say or what they did say. 
Adrian when you talked with them. But uh, anyway, that's my take on that. I, I, I don't think this is a problem in itself, but it does make me wonder why they're only willing to um, offer trendy, politically correct examples of honoring the dignity of human all human beings, and then instead of uh, embracing or clarifying their commitment to the full value of the unborn as well. Okay. So let's see what I got next here. Um, here's one from uh, John, our trip. Why don't we go to John? He's kind of toward the top of the list here. Hi, Greg. Um, great show. Love the show. Learn a lot. Thank you. Um, I do have a question, but let me segue into my question. Um, two Saturdays ago, my ex-daughter-in-law, um, it was an early Saturday morning, uh, she was found um, and she committed suicide. Hmm. Um, I'm a believer. My wife's a believer. I don't know if she was. She never professed faith in Jesus. Hmm. Um, although she was raised a Roman Catholic, but she never pr- professed any kind of faith in Jesus. So I'm doubting whether she was she was saved. So um, my wife and I, we keep, well, specifically, I do. I, I think about why she did it. She has two boys. She left behind two boys, one from her first marriage to my son. He's 12, my grandson, and another one to her second marriage, and he's five, two boys. And I just can't wrap my head around why she would do this. We've known her for many, many years. Before she was married to my son, we knew her. She was always strong. She loved her boys. Good mom. Um, and then she, oh boy, we found out that this tra- tra- tragedy happened. And then now I'm kind of focusing in on her eternal destiny. And I don't know if I should be focused on that or God's goodness and his justice. Um, I'm just having a hard time. Mm. Okay. Greg, thank you so much. Well, John, you're welcome. And uh, it's a, it's a sad, um, a sad tale, a sad circumstance. Um, and a lot of what you're struggling with is just the emotional burden that this is creating for you and your obvious concern for your uh, grandchildren, two boys, 12 and 5. I had a close friend, a gal I knew for many years. Actually, she was a former girlfriend that w- w- was in a similar situation where she married someone else and then uh, took her own life when she had younger children. And I knew a little bit about the circumstances though there. And frankly, I wasn't completely surprised based on what I knew. I, I, I don't, I can't say anything about your former daughter-in-law, I, reasons or whatever. Uh, you, you're, you knew her and you're still befuddled by why this would take place. So it's, who knows what people have to, bear up under 
and how how soon or when they um, they run out of steam and they feel it's they're better off dead than alive. Um, the the woman I was just referring to in my life was a Christian. Um, if your former daughter-in-law was Roman Catholic, even on Roman Catholic doctrine, um, suicide is a, a mortal sin. So that means um, there is no forgiveness for that on their doctrine. Now, I, I don't agree with that. Um, if Jesus came to pay for sin and the cross cancels sin out, how can sin cancel the cross out? is one way I look at it. Um, every sin is forgivable. Paul said, I'm the greatest of sinners because I murdered, I murdered, I persecuted the church of God. Yet God forgave me to demonstrate his grace and his ability then by application to forgive the lesser sinners as well. And, uh, and the point there was that God's grace covers sin. The blood of Christ cancels sin out. The issue here isn't that your former daughter-in-law was Roman Catholic, but was that that she, apparently she did not know Christ and the grace of God available to her. And I'm not saying that's true of all Roman Catholics. I know it isn't. Um, and I and it's not. <laughs> and there's a lot of a lot of Protestants who don't understand grace either. I'm just simply saying the issue is. What was her final status regarding trust in Christ? And it appears that she didn't trust in him, as you pointed out. Okay, and now this leaves leaves you wondering what to focus on. If she wasn't a Christian, you know what her t- eternal destiny is. She is going to pay for the crimes against God that she has committed, such as they are or were. And that's true of every person who dies outside of Christ. They are punished for the crimes they commit. It's a matter of God's goodness and justice. Um, as to focus, um, uh, e- even when we know a person has, it has is not going to be with us in heaven, a loved one that we really care about but had no interest in Christ and is, dies without forgiveness— as difficult as that may be, emotionally, we, we might try to comfort ourselves by saying, well, I will not see them forever, but we, we know that God is good and God is just, and his punishment of them is a good, just thing. Now, that's a true, that's a true, a truism. Um, but the problem is it may not help you too much emotionally, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to get too much uh, mileage out of that, this side of the resurrection. Now, some people have asked, well, how can I enjoy heaven when I know my loved ones are in hell? And the answer is, when you're in heaven, you're going to see it differently. This element of punishment being uh, an expression of God's goodness and justice and an appropriate thing to do, a good thing for him to do, is not something we can get our our heads around emotionally right now. Um, It is something that will be, I think, quite clear to us when we're in our resurrected state. But now it's, in a certain sense, more academic, and it doesn't really help. Well, I know I loved them, and I want to see them, but they're getting what they deserve. I know 
theologically, that's the right thing to say, but it's not, you could, obviously, it doesn't help you emotionally. And so that's why I wouldn't even think about that. What I'd think about is a 12-year-old and a 5-year-old. That's what I'd think about. I'd think about the living, not about the dead. And uh, God is the one who knows, ultimately, regarding your former daughter-in-law, and um, just leave it to Him. And if it turns out that they, they have not, she has not obtained eternal life, when you know that, you will understand properly and will not be um, uh, grieved in the sense that you're grieving now. Your, your perspective will be different. Right now, you can help those boys and be a good granddad to them in the Lord. All right, John, hope that helps. Um, that's tough. Life is hard, and then you die, right? Oh. Okay, let me look. I, I'll tell you what, let's take a, one more break, and it'll give me a chance to scan some of these questions, and I'll decide where we're going to go when I return on Stand to Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. Right, uh, final segment here in our show, and uh, actually, I have two different questions from Katie uh, from um, what's MT Montana. Um, yeah, that would make sense. I want to do the first one where she talks about uh, Ephesians uh, chapter four, and because there's some interesting and I think valuable theological things that are tied in with the questions, even though I understand that the the recording cuts off towards the end. Let's hear from Katie on that one. Hi, Greg. This is Katie from Montana. Uh, I'm reading through Ephesians right now, and I, I also submitted this as a question for the STR Ask podcast, but I wanted to expound further 
Um, so I'm reading through Ephesians, and in the first three chapters, Paul lays out the case of um, the gospel and the mystery, and how the mystery is that the Gentiles are now co-heirs. Um, previously, they were excluded from the promises. They were without hope and without God, but now they're co-heirs and partners in the promise. Um, and he kind of makes the case of breaking down the wall of hostility and uniting Jew and Gentile together um, in the gospel as one. Mm -hmm. So that's the first three chapters. And then in chapter four, he goes on to say, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance and their hardness of heart. So I'm just confused because that seems counterintuitive to what he was just saying. Mm -hmm. He's saying, hey, they're, you know, Jew and, and Gentile are united and they're co-heirs and the promises for the Gentiles too. But now it's saying, but don't be like the Gentiles because they're ignorant mm -hmm. and they are excluded from the life of God. And it's talking in present tense. So I don't understand if he's, and he's also speaking to Gentiles. So I don't quite understand how this chapter, this part in chapter four correlates to what he was just saying in the first three chapters. I, I, I know elsewhere in his letters, he talks about, you know, the Jews and their blindness and their downfalls. So I think he, he's not, um, he doesn't play favorites between the Jews and the Gentiles. He lays out both of their faults um, and also talks about their unity in the gospel. But I guess I'm just confused particularly about Ephesians 4 and how it seems to um, disconnect from. Okay. That's where we get caught off. But I, I, I get the question, Katie, it's a great question. And it's, um, I'm really impressed, actually, by your understanding of Ephesians. I actually think there are very few Christians that could even vote, uh, I, I should say, um, quote passages in Ephesians who uh, will actually be able to follow the train of thought and the development of thought that Paul has laid out here, that you are quite familiar with. In fact, it's your familiarity with the argument as it moves forward through these first few chapters of Ephesians that creates the confusion for you that you see in chapter 4, because it seems to be contradictory. He says one thing on the one hand regarding Gentiles, and another thing on the other hand. And I think a key to understanding this, and I think you're going to see this is going to be very easy to resolve, but a key to understanding the resolution or pointing in that direction is an observation you made. He's writing to Gentiles right now. He's writing to Christians in Ephesus who were Gentiles and not Jews. Okay, and uh, so here's here's the deal. What we see in this section of Ephesians, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, uh, is just as you've described it. But let me just put it in more uh, uh, generalized terms or big picture terms. Gentiles as a group were not had no covenants with God that led them to salvation. The covenants with God 
that that created a people of God that included benefits from God were the Jews. And in fact, one of those covenants cut them off from the Gentiles as a group. And this were all kinds of—that's the Mosaic Law, and this is, there were lots of provisions there that made them culturally distinct. Stay away from these Gentiles. And the reason was, is because God did not want their religious purity to be theologically and behaviorally corrupted by intermingling with the Gentiles. He was trying to protect the purity of the Jewish covenants and the goals that God had for the Jews, ultimately to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Remember in Abraham, uh, the, the promise to Abraham, um, in, in you all nations of the earth will be blessed. All the goy, the goyim. And so that's the Gentiles. So what we see here in Ephesians 2, especially this description that Gentiles as a group were outside of the covenants of God, here was the covenants made with the Jewish people, and one was the covenant of law, Mosaic law, that actually separated them from the Gentiles. Now we have a new covenant, and it's called a, called the New Covenant, not like the one they broke, the Mosaic Law, Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, where he says that, but a new one that bring, breaks down the dividing wall, it's the law, you got that right, and brings them together as one whole person. So now we have the church in which there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, ethnically, that the Gentiles are included into the provision of the new covenant that was initiated for the Jews and now includes the Gentiles. Now, you know all of this. I'm confident of that, Katie. What's going on in chapter 4? In chapter 4, Paul is not talking about Gentiles as a group. He is talking about individual people who are living godless lives. And you'll notice the word Gentile is used in that way many times in Scripture, okay? And in in other words, the Gentiles were the godless people. They weren't necessarily non-Jews, because godless people sometimes were Jews too. But the Gentiles were those outsiders, those people who were living immoral lives. And uh, folks use the terminology in certain circles today, too. They talk about non-Christians as Gentiles, okay? And that's the sense in which being used here. He is not talking about abrogating the, the, the new thing that he was just discussing. He's saying, okay, now all that's settled. Now look at there are people out there that are godless, and they're living godless lives. We call them Gentiles, okay? Those godless Gentiles, okay? And they are, as unsaved people, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Here I'm reading, of course, from Ephesians 4.18 and following all of that other description. But it says, it's interesting, verse 20, but you, who? You Ephesians, who are actually ethnically Gentile, right? But you did not learn Christ in this way. Indeed, if indeed you have heard him, and have been taught by him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, which he just described in chapter in verse 18, that you lay aside that old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Okay, so there we go. What we have here is an equivocation. A reference to Gentiles in chapter 2 and 3 of Ephesians, 
as the non the non-Jew body of humanity, and then in chapter four, a more colloquial use of the word Gentile to mean sinners outside of the church, unsaved people. And you used to be unsaved, and you used to be Gentiles in that sense, but you're not Gentiles in that sense anymore. Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4, you have been saved, and therefore you ought to walk in a manner that's worthy of the salvation that you have received. Okay? Simply put, Katie, no contradiction here. But it's a little difficult to follow since the same word is used, unless, and if you don't realize that they are used with different definitions, it sounds like a contradiction. Hope that helps. Keep up the great work that you're doing. Uh, looking forward to other questions that you have sent in. We'll answer those in another show. Greg Kokel here. Four stand to reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.